Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today we've got part two of a special encore chat with Evie Wilde. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Now, 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty has never been made in Australia. Now, as I mentioned at the top there, this is part two of a conversation with Evie Wilde. Evie Wilde is the Miles Franklin Award-winning author of All the Birds Singing, and she joined me on Final Draft last year to discuss The Bass Rock, Now, this is a novel that has won the 2021 Stella Prize. So, firstly, huge congratulations to Evie. Um, It's it's such a special prize. I wanted to represent this conversation and extend it. So, I've I've done a little bit of a re-edit, a remaster of the audio, but I've also listened back to all of the bits of the conversation that didn't make it to air the first time. First thing I would say, if you haven't listened to part one, definitely go back and check that out. It will help make every, it'll, everything will make a whole lot more sense. Now, The Bass Rock is a book that weaves together three narratives across centuries, exploring the pervasive violence that women must live with daily. And that's where I want to start because this is about the very contemporary issue of violence against women. If this is something that uh, might be traumatic for you, then please consider tuning out now. The novel opens on a scene of a mother and a child walking on the beach, only to make a, gru- gris- uh, <laughs> a gruesome discovery. We then meet Vivian arriving in town late at night to catalogue the estate of her grandmother, Ruth. In the post-war Scotland, Ruth is arriving at her own home, her new home, unsure of her place and the role of her in the lives of her adopted children. Centuries earlier, Sarah must flee her village after she is charged with witchcraft, These three stories are woven together to explore an issue that may seem very now but has been going on for years. In part two, we are getting into spoiler territory. Again, you might might want to listen to part one first and you might want to, if you haven't read The Bass Rock, consider, consider going and reading it first. But if you are ready, if you want to dive deeper into The Bass Rock, join me as we discover and revisit Evie Wilde's The Bass Rock. Now, I've tried to keep very, very carefully to the opening of the book because there is so much, so much terrific story in the Bass Rock, but there is also, there's, there's things that I could spoil for the reader's discovery. So, this might be the time in the conversation where we, we let the listener know that if they're yet to read the Bass Rock, they might hear things that, that are otherwise, otherwise they might want to discover on their own, but I, I, I can't not talk about certain things and I wanted to start with the way those those narratives came together as you were just talking uh, they emerged off your pen and you weren't quite sure what they were but as you as you go between the stories and the historical times you played with what I thought I knew about the characters um, such that I, I had this impression of knowing a character well and then thinking no mm-hmm. I don't know them at all um, mm-hmm. and I was recalled to, to sort of moments that maybe we all have where you'll you'll see a photo 
or hear a story of, of your parents or your grandparents and suddenly they emerge for you in a, in a completely new light. You related a similar story yourself just then. But how, how did they unfold for you and what, what did you learn at different times? Because it was so surprising for me. <laughs> uh, well, the way I write is, um, I guess, helps with that in that it's a big mess. I don't plan anything. I just sit down and write what occurs to me that day. So it's really a miracle that they get finished at all, that there's a there's some kind of ending. Um, so, yeah, all I do is I just follow the characters and I, I feel like it's, you know, you use a slightly different part of your brain when you're writing like that than than having an end point to get to. Um but I was, I'm always amazed by that feeling that you just described of like, you know, realising, for instance, that lots of other people have known your own parents for much longer than you, which seems like such an obvious thing, um, that that everyone has secrets and everyone has got a weight of history behind them. Um, and like you say, that you, you can't know anyone. Um, you can't kind of understand anyone's thought process and I think I think this is always really starkly shown to me every time I have a book out and I'm worried that some family member or other will see themselves as I've thought you know rendered exactly as they are and they never they never see themselves as I think they are they see themselves as someone completely different in the in the story so I think that does really interest me um and and I think it's important also not to have characters who are too good or too bad at the same time. There's, you know, a bad character, a baddie kind of has to have something to him, if, whether it's humour or um, an understandable past. Mm. And similarly, yeah. a, a good character, you know, a, a heroine kind of, they need to be human. They need. They need to be fallible. And like we all are, have um, things that aren't heroic that they've done in their lives. What about the circumstance? I mean, as I say, you unveil so much, and it's always so surprising. But a circumstance where we, you know, we learn, you learn later about a character that we've met both as a child or an older man. I'm thinking of Christopher. We learn Ooh. about sort of brutality that he's he's suffered as a child do you do you have to then think about the older character that you've introduced us to and whether that's still consistent because i mean it it read so beautifully consistent but i was you you know i was always surprised by the turns that it took and and these are these were family turns we're not we're not talking about car chases here this is beautiful (laughs) subtle stuff thank you yeah um yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a lot of the time I'll be writing a character and I won't know what's happened to them, but I'll know how they are. Mm. Um, and so it's like de- sort of backwards detective work, kind of like, well, why is this character so quiet at family mm. gatherings? What's the thing behind all of that? And um, so, yeah, it's almost like it's starting at the end and working backwards a lot of the time. Um, mm. And then you know, as with all of my books, then it takes on another life of like, well, going back to childhood and then going back to that child's parents and their childhood. And 
I'm always interested in that trickle down effect um, of trauma way back in the generations and how that affects people now. The supernatural has a presence in this novel that at times as we read it is is incredibly alarming. I you have you know sort Thank of you. Henry <laughs> yeah I mean there are Henry James turn of the turn of the screw type moments but then other times it's 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 also treated as wholly unremarkable. And I wondered mm. we're talking about these issues that are that are present that pervade every woman's life um whatever her direct experience of violence, what's what's the role of the supernatural in that in that sort of space? Um, I guess a bit like the Bass Rockets, like, you know, if if you were to believe in the supernatural, there's a sort of feeling that there's somebody just watching everything happen and unable to intervene and unable and perhaps not feeling like they want to intervene, but just I don't know. I I kind of like this idea that um, there was a that we're just moving in and out of like these death zones that um, you know the world's been around and people have been around for long enough that I think you'd be hard pressed to find a patch of ground that has that someone hasn't died on um, mm. or been buried in and and I think when it comes to um, femicide I was looking at um, Sherelle Moody's map um, of the murdered women and children of Australia <clears throat> I don't know if you've come across that and it's um, it's an interactive map um, and she's got little red hearts all over it and each one is where a body was found and you click on it and it shows you <clears throat> who the person was if they have that information and then as much about the case and if it was solved um, as they can. And what really struck me was the amount of unknown bodies, unknown women. Um, And so I think that kind of, to me, was a really beautiful illustration of what this is like, this kind of, um, you know, we're, we're told statistically how unlikely it is that something like that will happen to us. But when you look at it, I mean, it doesn't seem like that small a statistic to me. It seems quite alarming and rising. We talked a little um, off mic before the interview about that feeling uh, that that women have, whether it be on a dark street or just just in general life of impending doom, trepidation when you are not sure the person who is approaching you are they are they someone who could potentially harm you is this feeling that you're sort of describing in this this supernatural in the novel a counterpoint to that in any way is it is it somehow a presence that that meets that yeah. that other sense I suppose so I mean I what um what I wanted to get across is is kind of more the in the um in the kind of present day strand is that feeling of the little things um, building up and creating this massive weight. Um, So whether it's being just stood too close to on on public transport when you know 
you know that somebody's doing it deliberately but mm. what can you say you know without being rude which is mm. the the biggest problem that women apparently face and um or whether it's somebody asking you what book you're reading and how that impacts your day and how alone you feel in those moments and angry and how it really changes the course of your day so much that you can be on your way back from work thinking about all the things you have to do thinking about how you have to look after yourself how you have to you know in a film you come in take your coat off have a shower make yourself some delicious food and then eat it reading a book and in, in fact what a lot of people I know including myself do is they come in with all these intentions they don't take their coat off they sit on the sofa in the dark and they just sit there feeling really really heavy and depressed um, and I think that is partly symptomatic of this um, the level of small small violences that are played out in a woman's life every day which include, you know, that sort of feeling of somebody walking up behind you and you just have to be ready with your keys in your fist. Um, but that's an, that's such an everyday occurrence that we forget that it's happening. We forget that it's a thing at all. And again, why it is, I guess, so important to start to unpack what those, what those small violences entail uh, mm. So that so that people can so that some sort of realization can be brought to to consciousness, mm. both for the people who yeah. who are more more than well enough aware, and then probably people uh, like myself who are who are male and perhaps too many times are excusing or just ignoring these violences either in themselves or in their friends or in people around them because they don't want to be involved. Yeah, I think there's a I think we have a big problem over here with people wanting to joke about stuff, you know, like being a, a lot of this happens on public transport, being on a, a packed train with some drunk men who are coming back from a rugby game or something. And they're making comments about the women and, and, you know, what they'd be like to sleep with, um, which is a very sanitized version of it. Um, mm. And and you, the, I don't know, there are multiple films of um, on iPhones of this happening. And, and then, you know, a woman will stand up and say, can you stop this? This is disgusting. And you, you men who are not saying anything, why are you not saying anything? Shut your friend up. He's awful. And then it turns into this, like, we're just trying to have a nice time. We're just joking. Why are you so stuck up? What's the problem? Blah, blah, blah. You should take it as a compliment. All of that stuff. Um, which, when that gets thrown back at you, it makes you angry. But also, there's this terrifying voice in your head saying, maybe I'm just really uptight. And maybe I am an angry woman. And, and is that a bad thing? And I think we're taught, women are taught, it's ingrained in them. Um, that they above all cannot be angry or difficult in any way and you see that in the workplace you see you know the minute a woman makes the same demands as a man in the same tone they're a difficult woman to work with and they don't get worked with as much um, and it's really even even kind of quite 
you know, right thinking men and women um, do that. And mm. it, it's really depressing. <laughs> I don't know that it's it's new, but I think it's probably worth saying again. And for for the listeners out there, maybe we just need to let people know that if you're thinking, let alone saying, come on, it's just a joke, mm. you've done something wrong, you, you're mm. part of the problem. Um, mm. Because if you need to tell someone it's a joke, it's it's not a joke. Um, yeah. It hasn't landed. <laughs> yeah, it, ha- it hasn't quite hit the mark. And and so often, yeah, it's it's a part of not just the aggression, but the structure that actually supports the aggression and allows it to keep happening. Yeah, and the worst thing also, which is ingrained into men, which is part of toxic masculinity, which damages them as well, um, is that they cannot ever lose face, you know. Mm. There has to be – that's why it never really works. I mean, it, it makes perhaps the women feel more seen if somebody says something to someone on, on the public transport who's behaving like that. It's not going to – that man is never going to go, oh, I'm terrible, I didn't realise I was causing offence. I'll sit down and be quiet now. I do apologise. That's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, what's going to happen is they're going to go away fired up really angry hating women more um but yeah it's it's who knows what the answer is but um i i think it's all about just noticing and talking and speaking up when you can when it's safe um or just sitting next to someone if they look like they're alone and having this situation Letting them know that you're you've got your eye out for them, yeah. even if you don't want to escalate something. And I think, I mean, I think I can maybe speak to the men in the audience and say, you know, it is possible to be part of the solution, but as you've just said, it means it means you have to look and you have to stop being part of the problem to begin with, mm-hmm. um, and think about those things, think about those mindsets, think about the idea of of what face means and what um, you know what thinking something is just a joke actually might mean and then changing that and changing that behavior yeah Yeah, absolutely i i have another question perhaps perhaps my last Mm -hmm. question um and it's about maggie in the bass rock maggie enters the novel saving viv from the creep waiting by her car late at night that I've already mentioned. And she moves in and out of the narrative sort of as a, a figure of freedom and power. At one point, just beautifully neutering an aggressive male outburst. And there's something of the ideal to her. And I wondered what, if anything, you could say about Maggie without completely unravelling the novels who are yet, the novel for those who are yet to read it. Or just, or just tell me and I'll edit later. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose she is... Um... Well, she's a self-described witch, (laughs) which um, is like she's not embarrassed about it. She's not afraid of people thinking she's really annoying um, and loud. Um, She's a little bit, I suppose, like a sort of female Tyler Durden from Fight Club in that she, you know, for a while while I was writing it, I was thinking, is she an alter ego of Viv? Um, she's not. She's her own thing. But she's the the exact opposite to Viv, who is interior and closed and um, 
sort of stagnant, <laughs> I suppose. And the, um, Maggie goes out every day and does something, whether it's a weird, you know, whether it's just I'm going to get really stoned on top of the hill or um, I'm going to go and, I don't know, sleep on the beach or something. She she does a thing every day. And, um, yeah, she's not – I don't think she's necessarily – sort of winning at life she's um she's still got the same problems that um that Viv has but she's just approaching them in a different way um but she was really good fun to write because she's loud and colorful and a lot of the book is sort of dark and gothic and um you know could be quite humorless if if there wasn't a um if there wasn't like a burst of something messing it up. Um, yeah, I think she's, she's the kind of most impressive bits of a lot of women I know. Mm. I had a, I had a sense to right towards the very end of the novel when you, mm. when you kill Sarah in, I'm now going to mm. have to edit this out very much for people who've not read the book, <laughs> but I had a sense that somehow you were going to draw a, a straight lineage between Sarah and Maggie and, and kind mm. of create that, that sort of ideal strength that had been moving through the centuries. And, but then I also through the supernatural, I also had a sense that you were doing that, but in a, in a less, uh, a, a more diffuse uh, a less directly connected way to, to sort of, I don't know, create some sort of strength, create some sort of hope. I think all the women in it share that slight supernatural mm. um, sort of trait. Like they're, they're all rebellious mm. in some way. Um, and really what it is is, is the, uh, the kind of, not quite supernatural, but the... Um, the thing that all women have that they don't listen to often because it's thought of to be rude, that they like listening to their internal voice, their instinct, when you get a funny feeling about something, mm. um, the idea that you can act on that and say, no, sorry, I am leaving this situation right now. And if you are, um, if you are a murderer, then that's the right thing to do. And if you're not, then you should understand that mm. something about this mm. situation makes me feel like I'm in danger. Um, and I think that's, I think Viv and Maggie together are in touch with that feeling. Um, Sarah and Ruth had that feeling, um, maybe kind of started to question it. But um, but it's definitely it's, there's a, a kind of thickening in your throat and your gut that happens in some situations and you cannot tell exactly what it is but you just know that something's not right and um, and you know the my favourite murder and the community that built up around that is all about listening to that and and it has undoubtedly saved people's lives and that's what the hope is at the end is that you know well maybe you know spoiler alert maybe Viv will go on to survive because of this noticing mm. it's um yeah it's a terrible and it's a wonderful thing to be reading the Bass Rock and and to be to be rooting for these characters that you've you've created 
and realizing that what you're rooting against, sort of the villainy that is is very much a part of you know to be male, to be man, to be a man, to be you know brought up in a, in the patriarchy, and um, it's it's something incredible that you've done there because I it galvanized me to think change needs to happen like these these stories as incredible as you tell these stories these are stories that we don't want to see perpetuated um yeah mm. Mm. absolutely mm. i'm speaking with evie wild and we are discussing the bass rock um if you are still listening and have not tuned out to uh to avoid spoilers thank you so much evie uh it's been such a terrific chat and this is this is a really tough a really tough conversation and i know that means less coming from me because I'm not a woman who experiences this on a daily basis. But please, if this has uh, impacted you in any way in Australia, you can call Life on 131114. Evie, I really want to say thank you again. Thank you for, for chatting to me across the time zones. Thanks so much for having me. And that is it for this great conversation with Evie Wild. Evie's new novel, well been out for a while but it is the stellar prize winning the bass rock it is out through penguin great conversations is recorded on the lands of the darug and gunungurra people two ser broadcasts from the lands of the gadigal people of the eora nation the show is produced and presented by andrew popel if you want to keep up with us we're on the socials just look for at final draft two ser in the social network of your choice but more importantly click subscribe in your podcast app it means that you will catch all the episodes the two-parters, the bonus episodes. If you are enjoying the show, can you give us a rating? Can you make a comment? I'd love to hear from you. And also, it helps put us in front of the eyes of more book lovers out there in podcast land. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back very soon with another great conversation from Final Draft. Until then, I hope you have a happy week of reading. Bye now.